Brick Moon Fiction presents Rat, Sharp Tooth, Sky by Sam French Narrated by Nicholas Thurkettle The rich can't live with them, my sister said, mangling up a plastic bottle cap with her formidable teeth. She was only 13 years old, but her teeth were sharper than any teeth I had ever seen. On a human, that is. I mean, they were like the teeth of a weasel or a stout. And it felt, at times, when she was laughing, for example, that she had rows and rows of them like a shark or some prehistoric monster that lived deep within the ocean. She mainly used them to chew litter that we found while walking around the world. Plastic bottles were her favorite, but I'd seen her shred cans of coke and even tear into a nickel, but they weren't too bad in a fight if it came to that. I don't remember if they had always been that sharp. I think back to when she took ballet a hundred thousand years ago or when she would visit me in my apartment for dinner, and I can't remember if she had sharp teeth then. They must have been, right? Somewhat, at least. Everything changed quickly in our lives, the country, the world, the streets, homes, ballet classes, even in our mouths. But teeth don't just instantly become weapons, right? Or do they? As a child and as a girl, she was at war, personally, with seeming weak. We were at war, as a unit, with hunger, homelessness, high winds, feral cats, armored trucks, helicopters, other siblings, other people, rats, 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 at night, electric lines that had come down but were still alive and could get you like a stingray, sharp pieces of glass, the lack of antibiotics, urban jungles, poorly paved streets, how hard it was to find reliable shoes in my size, twelves popular, always looted quickly and efficiently. Everyone knows someone who is a twelve, might as well grab a pair of twelves no matter what, you might see them one day and be able to give them those boots. Hunger, hunger, jealousy, rage, sunburns, the lack of mirrors or showers, rats, dogs on occasion, each other on occasion but not often, no coffee anywhere, escaped lions, maggots that got in your shoes, can you eat that, can you drink that, gum disease, rats, brick walls, armored cars, cab drivers, dusty roads that led onward, always onward, the lack of street signs, zookeepers, construction workers, retired NBA basketball players, that was a funny one if I can even remember how it happened, shards of glass, garbage trucks, watering holes, grocery stores, deer, geese, mice, rats, barbed wire, rats. The rich can't live with them, she repeated. She spat out the bottle cap. She looked at me for a response. I mustered up a laugh, or what I thought a laugh should sound like these days, and asked her where she had heard that one. On Oprah Free Oprah, apparently. Oprah Free Oprah is this great television station, I guess inspired by Radio Free Europe, run by a bunch of anonymous squatters and drifters who had taken possession of one of the TV studios that used to broadcast Oprah shows. They all wore these terrific Oprah masks so you wouldn't know who they were and, like Facebook, couldn't tell you who they were. They wore these terrific Oprah masks, and if you were able to tune in at the right time, they could tell you really valuable paths of travel, or places to find food, or just like great jokes about fucking rich people that made you laugh a little bit. Once they actually captured a rich person, who knows how, and executed her live on TV, but neither me or my sister had been tuning in at that time. We watched a lot of replays of it on ESPN later that week, though. You sort of have to hate rich people these days. When the whole thing went to hell after the elections, they started looting with us side by side. But when things really started catching fire, they just disappeared. You'd look for them everywhere. I mean, obviously, it's not like they're wearing monocles or something. You can't just look at someone and go, oh, hey, there's a rich person. But you would only see really, really hungry people. People who had a look in their eye like they could stab you with their own broken collarbones. People who would try to stab you with their own broken collarbones. And then we started hearing about the bunkers. And then we started finding them. And then we started being told to go away. 
It didn't matter who you were, a mom in labor, a grandfather with dementia, a 13-year-old girl with sharp teeth and her older brother. You were told to go away. And unless you had some way of getting through those steel walls several feet thick, you had to listen. Or else you'd just be picked off by vultures. The helicopters and the real birds of prey would just outweigh you. You couldn't win. So you had to hate rich people because they were cowards and because they were the enemy. My little sister was spoiled a long time ago. She hadn't been told no very often in life before the riots. She had these massive temper tantrums before the riots that were kind of like sandstorms on a foreign planet, or what I imagine those would be like. They were unchartable, untrackable, and you could get lost within them, her limbs flailing and her torso writhing like a snake in a sewer. My parents had spoiled her. They didn't know the end of the world was coming, of course, so they gave her everything and didn't teach her how to be without, which made things extra difficult for her at first. But then it almost seemed to help, because even when things are at the worst, when we haven't eaten in a few days or haven't slept this month or had to trade a toe to a pawn shop in order to get a couple of bucks, she has this deep-seated belief that she is entitled to have more and faith that if she fights hard enough, she will get that more. I don't really have that faith that things will get better, and I think that's what will ultimately kill me. So I guess it's good that my parents spoiled her, because I don't think she's going to turn into a rat meat like me and just about everyone else we know. She's going to find a way out, a way to get what she wants. Our parents died very quickly after the rioting began. They had been firm believers that something like that couldn't happen. They trusted the bureaucracy, the system, whatever, so that when it finally toppled over, they toppled with it. I remember calling my mom from across the country, trying to convince her to go into hiding, and she just wouldn't. She even went to her job the next day. She kept trying to fit into a world that had vanished, and so she slid through the hole where it had been. I think she had a heart attack. I think Dad was stabbed by a preschool teacher. I hope maggots ate their bodies and not humans. When my sister and I had a funeral for them, we used two old mop heads to stand in for their bodies. The handles of the mop had been sharpened and traded for a bouquet of wildflowers. I think those wildflowers were the last good-smelling thing I can remember. We have an older brother, too, but we don't talk about him a lot. We look for him a bit in real life, when everything first happened. But the minute our cell phones stopped working, it became hopeless. But I still look for him in my dreams. I fly over the entire country, sometimes the entire universe, trying to spot him with an eagle eye. But the problem is that, even in a fantasy world where I can fly, I don't have access to those bunkers. And my sister and I decided a long time ago that that is where we think he ended up where we think he must be. He's not in an alleyway or a tent city or a dirt road or a converted semi-truck or always on the move or trading blowjobs for a waterbed in the basement of some suburban motel. He was always good at staying warm. And he had money. He didn't have a lot of compassion for the world either. So he's probably comfortable somewhere. Eating well, pissing gold, sleeping in tanning beds and being fed fresh fruit. My sister would likely bite him if she saw him, but, and I've thought about this a lot, I think I would just pretend I didn't recognize him. I'd stare through him. I'd let him see that he became nothing, that he didn't preserve anything by hiding, because he's already a corpse. He's already empty carbs. He's already just dust waiting to be swept up. Even if he's warmer than we are, he's less. After we had shot the shit for a while and told a few more jokes that we had heard on Oprah Free Oprah, we had to go find some food because our stomachs were singing sad songs to us. My sister had heard that Amazon was going to be dropping some cans of soup into a neutral zone, and that seemed worth the risk. 
You can't bring weapons into neutral zones or Amazon will snipe you from above, but you can still get in fights. We were on the smaller side and traveled as just a pair, which made us pretty good targets, but we were also quick. We drew up a plan in the dirt, almost like a football play, for us to sweep in and out with hopefully no blood spilled. We also hoped they would have chicken noodle, but it was usually just tomato. While we walked to the neutral zone, we whisper-played one of our favorite games, Law & Order Bunker Style. Law & Order Bunker Style was a game my sister had come up with where you'd get to fantasize about how you would punish rich people for their crimes if you ever had the chance to. Would you have mercy? If they actively turned someone away, would they get the death penalty? What if they had just pretended not to hear the knocking or the screaming? My sister was in a rare mood on the walk, and she was being a tough judge. She came up with a great punishment. She said if you had ever seen a person in need of help and turned a blind eye, you would have those eyes gouged out. If you had ever heard them and done nothing, you would have your ears chopped up. Same with your nose and your hands. She also found reasons to strip them of their genitalia, nipples, and pinky toes. After that, they were free to go. But only into the real world, outside of their bunkers. She spoke eloquently and feverishly about what that would look like. A caravan of dickless, faceless sacks of flesh limping in the dust, their blood creating the freshest river since the Mississippi went toxic. When we got to the neutral zone, the air was thick with drones. Some of them were massive, the size of strip malls, but a lot of them were microscopic, and you could only sense them when you accidentally walked through a cloud of them. Those tiny drones were dangerous, because sometimes they'd be there to deliver bacteria, but sometimes they were there to deliver antibiotics, so you just didn't know how to react to them. I tended to just swat at them like they were gnats and pretend that's what they were. We didn't see any soup or really any food at all, and we didn't see anyone else. Which was strange. Usually when a rumor got out about food in the neutral zone, you'd see at least 50,000 people. At least. But it was just us, and a dark sky of drones. They were like stars. They made constellations. But they blocked out light. And we were still hungry. It smelled like a trap, but I couldn't even see anyone who could trap us. I asked my little sister where she had heard the rumor about the cans of soup, and she just shrugged and said, around. She picked up a broken drone wing from the black ground and gnawed on it like a bone, thinking, tossing her tongue around her own teeth and the shiny, sharp black metal of the fallen angel. She sat on the ground and just chewed it, and I actually thought she looked like an animal for a moment. I always called her shark mouth, jungle cat, little lion, dragon spawn, rabid dog, mangy cat, but I never thought she actually was an animal. The floor was really dirty, but I couldn't tell where she began and it ended. The sound of the wing collapsing under her mouth's pressure was like a lot of gunshots muddled underwater. She was a wolf, I think. Or maybe she was a small bear. I was staring down at her so I didn't notice all of the drones clear out of the sky but I saw the sunlight hit her brown hair and transform her back into a human child. Both of us looked skyward to see a brilliant blue, totally empty. This was strange. There were always vultures. There were always drones. There were always helicopters. There were always blood comets or shooting stars or eclipses to make you believe that something would change. But there was just blue sky now and a strong sun beating down on us. I let myself feel hopeful for a moment, even though I was desperately hungry and I still smelled a trap on the air. My sister looked like a child, and she even stopped chewing on the blade for a moment. And then we saw a helicopter. And then we saw it land nearby. And then my sister didn't run. 
even though I was screaming at her to run, begging her to run or to get ready to bite and chew, screaming at her to become an animal, to be an animal, to let herself be wild and savage and feral and rabid because we were going to need to fight because there were people coming out of the helicopter and they weren't wearing monocles, but they had bulletproof vests on and guns, guns, and even the rats were running away from them. The rats were running away, but my sister was standing up and walking towards the helicopter. And then she was hugging one of the men in the bulletproof vests. She was going limp in his arms. She was hanging on to him like she was being rescued, like she had finally made it home. And then she looked back at me and tried to smile, but it didn't look right because her teeth were so sharp and it didn't look right because she hadn't smiled in several years and had forgotten how and it didn't look right because our brother was next to her and he wasn't supposed to make her smile and it didn't look right because she was also very sad or at least I thought she looked sad or guilty. And then her smile was gone because she was gone because the helicopter had taken her away. And the drones came back. And the rats came back. And I was still hungry. And I didn't have sharp teeth. And I was alone. Sam French is a writer and director located in Brooklyn. Originally from Florida, he is a recent graduate of Carnegie Mellon University. His plays have been produced in Pittsburgh, Florida, Martha's Vineyard, and New York. His short story, A Love Letter to the Boys of Summer, won the Adamson Award for Fiction at CMU. Sam was named a Top 20 Artist Under 25 in the Tampa area by Creative Loafing Magazine and has two one-acts published by Baker's Plays. This has been a production of the Brick Moon Fiction Podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps us find a bigger audience. For more information on Brick Moon and special offers, Sign up for the Brick Moon Fiction newsletter at brickmoonfiction.com. Thank you for listening.